it fast enough. All right. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, where the Holy Scriptures read, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them then not to make him known. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold the servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we ask that again this week you would be our teacher through your spirit, Lord. And Father, we just ask that we would see the beauty of our salvation as manifest in this text. Uh, Lord, this is a text that we can gloss over quickly. So we ask that we would not do that today, but that we would dig deeply into its richness and pull out the wonderful truths that are in it so that we might leave today worshiping you greatly more so than we had coming in today. We ask that this would change our affections, that it would change our behaviors, that it would change our outlook on life. We pray these things for your glorious name and our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There once was a king whose son was about to be married. And this wasn't just any normal king. It was, in fact, a very, very kind and generous king who cared deeply towards his people. (coughs) In fact, while most kings in that day were known for mistreating their people, for abusing them and taking advantage of them, this king was a step above all the rest who genuinely loved and cared for his people. And so hoping to invite many of them in for this wedding feast to join in celebration on this special day, he sent out his servants to invite these guests to come to the great feast. And so out they went, and the invitations were delivered. And so finally then that day arrived, the day that was marked on the invitations. And so the king then sent again, as was normal custom in this time, he sent out his servants then to call the guests and remind them that the wedding was that day, inviting them to come and join him on that marvelous celebration day. However, even though many of the guests checked yes on the invitation card, signed up for the meal choice that they preferred, chicken or beef, obviously, which I don't understand who chooses chicken, and then made personal plans to come to the wedding. Chicken's not a good idea, all right? Just stick with me. Let's keep going. When the day of the wedding finally arrived... There was a problem. The guests decided not to go. They ended up deciding just to stay home. And culturally, 
It's more rude than it sounds in this day and age. It was terribly rude. It was beyond rude. It was beyond disrespectful, especially of a king who was so kind and generous towards his people. And while many kings may have responded in anger to this blatant disrespect, no, not this king, for he was kind. He was different than all the rest. And so what did the king do? Well, he sent his servants again out and saying, today's the day, come. You checked, yes, you would come. You told me you would come. You want to come. This is a great feast celebrating my son's wedding. You surely will want to be a part of it. So come to the feast. And still, they paid no attention as they ignored the servants entirely. They paid no attention to these servants as one of them went back to his farm to work, another back to his business, which needed attending. And if that wasn't bad enough then, some got more hostile and extreme. And they grabbed the servants angrily for pestering them once again. And they beat them. And they mistreated them shamefully. And some they even killed. Their answer was abundantly clear to this king, wasn't it? They would not, under any circumstances, accept this generous king's invite to the feast. They would not go. And so finally then, the king's anger had reached a breaking point. And so he sent out his troops, and he destroyed all those evil people who had abused and murdered his servants. And so with justice and victory accomplished, the king then turned to his servants and said, we have some seats to fill, don't we? The wedding feast is ready, he said, but those who were invited refused to come, and so they are not worthy of it. Therefore, with these seats to fill, go out into the roads and invite to the wedding feast as many people as you can find. And so the servants went out and did just that. They went out to the roads and they gathered anyone and everyone. It didn't matter what country they were from. It didn't matter if they were rich or poor or if they were good or bad. So as long as they wore the proper garments that were provided to the feast, they would be welcomed and accepted. And even though the original guests who had been invited refused to come, this did not prevent the king's wedding from happening at all. The feast for his son would occur with many guests who were now there who were not the original invites. And yet because the original invites had responded so rudely, so wrongly to such a gracious invite, these others were invited in. Now, if you know that story, that comes from Matthew chapter 22. And we're not in Matthew chapter 22 today. We're in Matthew chapter 12. It's going to be a few weeks before we get to Matthew chapter 22. Or like years. But I'm bringing this up. Why? Because it relates directly to Matthew chapter 12. Very much so in what is happening in Jesus' life and ministry in this text. And what is happening is that the original guests, as we are seeing unfold, are rejecting the kind king, which is God's, offer to a feast. What am I talking about? Well, if you were here last week, you remember how it ended, right? The religious leaders, they went out and began plotting to kill Jesus, just as those servants did in Matthew chapter 22 in the story we just told, that's exactly what they began plotting to do. And remember that this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. This isn't weeks or months before the cross. We've still got a long ways to go. We've got lots of ministry left in Jesus' life. 
And so why did they plan to kill Jesus then? It's because they didn't want to go to the wedding feast. They didn't want to go at all. They wanted nothing to do with it. Sure, they had gotten the invite. Sure, they seemed excited about it at first. But when the day came, the Israelite nation said, no, I'm busy. I've got a job. I've got a farm. I've got things to do. And this feast, this kingdom invitation to a great celebration is interfering with my life. Now, if you read Matthew 22, you see that the wedding feast is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the kingdom. It says that right there. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a great king who invited guests to his feast for the wedding for his son. And so the religious leaders, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus's kingdom because it wasn't the kind of kingdom that kingdom that they were hoping for. And last week, one of the main issues about the kingdom that they didn't like was the king of the kingdom's view of the Sabbath, his view of the law. And so last week, it became loud and clear that Jesus wasn't going to follow their silly man-made Sabbath rules, not in his kingdom. And so they were triggered by it greatly to the point of wanting to kill him. So he had to go. The feast would not do. They returned their invitation card and said, thanks, but no thanks. And yet, as our passage this morning shows us, just as the original wedding guests, their rejection of that invitation they received, all right, so just as their invitation led to the invitation acceptance by so many more, so too does it for us, kingdom citizens, right? Israel had an invitation card, they rejected it, and then it came to all of us. And so, too, we benefit just like those guests benefited from the rejection that happened first. And the thing we have to remember about this text is this was all a part of the Messiah's plan. It was all part of the Father's plan. It was a part of the plan from the very beginning. All right, so that's the setup for our text this morning. And in our text, we're going to see four things about that mission, about that plan. And here's what they are. The Messiah's mission was four things. One, it was calculated. Two, it was calm, it was compassionate, and lastly, it was conquering. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, if you would. We don't put the text up on the screen, we put the cross-references up. So if you want to see those, you'll need to have your Bible. So if you could turn to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll begin jumping in here. So let's look at the first one. The Messiah's mission was calculated, not chaotic. Okay, first off, what's happening here is that Jesus, as we just talked about, right? he sees the response of the religious leaders, and he understands that they are furiously angry, that they are murderously angry. So he realizes that things are heating up, and so what does he do? He backs off. He withdraws, as verse 15 says. And then what does he do? He heals a whole bunch of people, and he says, hey, shh, don't you tell anybody. Be quiet about this. I'm trying to keep my profile low right now i got a few more, couple more years to go before the cross. And so, this, and then so after he tells them that, then Matthew shows how all of this was to fulfill Isaiah chapter 42. That's that little section right in the, in the middle of our text that we read. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. And those verses from Isaiah are a messianic prophecy about what Messiah would come and one day do. And Matthew's saying, see, he's doing it right here. And this has happened, this happened recently. It's happened, I think, a couple times in Matthew so far, where it's showing, at least a couple times, how Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And so look at verse 18. <clears throat> Behold my servant, 
whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. By now in Jesus' life and ministry, it is abundantly clear, completely crystal clear, he's the Messiah. He's the messianic son of David. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He casts out demons. And he continually goes on to fulfill prophecy after messianic prophecy that was revealed hundreds to thousands of years about him in the Old Testament. And so thinking back then to John's doubts in chapter 11, what's the deal then here, Jesus? What's going on here? Why is everything seemingly falling apart? Why is the messianic king being rejected by the people that he's coming to reign over? Well, the answer is because it's all a part of the plan. It's a calculated plan, not a chaotic one. This wasn't plan B. This was the plan from the start. And who calculated this plan? Who came up with this strategy in this text? Who is this that's speaking? It's God the Father. That's who it is. It's God the Father. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Do you see that in the text? It's the Father speaking. The Father chose this and told all about it through the Holy Spirit, through the prophets, hundreds to thousands of years before his beloved servant was even born into the world. And let me ask you a question. Does the plans of God the Father ever go haywire? No. Not even a little bit. For even the enemy's advances are nothing but a part of the strategic planning of the Father. If you've ever played chess before, then you know that good chess players, and I'm not one of them, but I like to play, but you know that good chess players make apparent mistakes sometimes as a part of their calculated strategy to actually win the game. It makes it look like they have given up their queen. Sometimes you sacrifice a king to get checkmate. And so too is it, church, with God. With God's planning, with his strategies, even the apparent victories of our enemy are all a part of our Father's perfect winning plan. All of them. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us that. Romans 8.28 says this, and this is a familiar verse around here, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're a child of God, everything, even your worst day, even your worst month, is all a part of God's glorious plan and purposes for you. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that's not the case? That you can fall out of the will of God in a way where you are lost and no longer his son or his daughter? If you look at Christ's life, things seem bad from the very start. The very start, right? Like what happened way back in the beginning of Matthew? He was born into the world and a king came after him and tried to kill him. And then he had to go with, his family had to take him as a refugee and flee to another land. And then when he returns and eventually begins his public ministry, he's hated and he's despised by the religious leaders who were the very ones who were ultimately responsible for saying, yep, that's the Messiah, follow him. They completely rejected him. And yet, in the face of this apparent failure, what does the Father say about all this? What does he say about Christ, my beloved Son, 
with whom my soul is well pleased. He's not disappointed. He's not, wow, we, well, we tried, uh, they didn't respond how we thought they would. None of that. He's well pleased with his son. That's something we heard back in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it's something we'll hear again when we get to Matthew 17 with Jesus' transfiguration on the mount. See, the relationship between Christ and the Father is one of absolute perfect intimacy, of closeness, of love. It's unlike any relationship, any love, anything that we can possibly imagine. This is a relationship, keep in mind, that didn't start when Jesus was born to this earth, was it? It predates that. In fact, it goes back to eternity. It's been going on for all of eternity. The Father then delighting in the Son, and the Son delighting in the Father has been an eternal delighting. And this is the mystery of our triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's not three gods. It's not, it's not one God with three different hats that he wears, right? It's not modalism. It's one God made up of three persons. And if you figure out how that works, you should write a book, because I have no clue. None of us do. It's a, it's a deep, profound mystery. And within the Godhead, this triune relationship that's been in existence forever, another thing I don't understand, within that Triune Godhead, it is a relationship of love and intimacy where each one pours its love and adoration on the other. It's perfect unity. And Christ, being the second person of the Trinity, was forever beloved by the Father, and the Father finds perfect delight in the Son as the Son finds perfect delight in the Father. And yet, in the midst of this profound, loving relationship, what does the Father do? He sends his beloved son into a world as a suffering servant to be rejected, to be despised, abused, and ultimately, as we will see eventually in Matthew, crucified by the hands of evil men. And why? To bring the hope to the nations, as we just sung about a little bit ago, and as verse 21 mentions. As the song we often sing says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he who gave his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Church, this is a profound impact for our self-worth, doesn't it? Never forget that it was God's plan before the foundation of the earth to send his beloved son, whom he loves for all of eternity, who he finds his own personal pleasure in as a lamb to die as a sacrifice for your sin, for my sin. And his rejection, his suffering are what made that possible to experience the love of God. Which means at least a couple things. One, it means that God is in absolute control, total control. Remember the chess analogy. He's in control even when it doesn't look like he's in control. All things work together for good for those who love God, for his children. They don't work together for good for those who are not his children, but for those who are, they absolutely do. So even when things in your life look dark, even when things in your life are so painful that you don't think you can bear one more minute of it, or even when you feel like God's love for you has withered and near vanished, remember, God's love for Christ 
is full control and that he sent his beloved son for you. It's remarkable. Secondly, remember that the darkness doesn't mean God loves you any less. As Paul points out in Romans 28, what could ever separate us from the love of God? That's the question he asked right in the text. Could famine, tribulation, sickness, danger, or sword? He's given off every example he can think of. Could that ever separate us from God's love? No, is his response. For in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Not because we are so strong and mighty and we have such zeal for following God. It's because of him who loved us. It's because of him who loved us. How much did he love us? Enough to send the one whom his beloved is, Christ, into the world to die for you. Enough to send his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. That's his gift. And if he loves us enough to give us that, does anybody really think that a bad day in our Christian walk is going to take that love away? A bad week? Or a bad month? Like, come on. If he's willing to give us his Christ, his son, Christ, none of that's going to take that away. For God sent his beloved son into the world to make wretches like us his pleasure. To bring justice and hope to the nations, as Isaiah mentions in his passage that Matthew quotes. That includes us. And because he planned for it, we see then the second point we're going to get to here, his calm demeanor in the face of contentiousness. And so the Messiah's mission was calculated, not chaotic, but secondly, because it was so calculated, it was a calm, not a contentious mission. Look at verses 18 through 19 with me. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, we've already talked about the reason for why Christ was rejected by his people. We understand that. We get it now. And it was because he didn't meet their messianic expectations. Well, just a reminder, what were those expectations? Well, they expected a conquering king, not a suffering savior. He didn't come how they thought he should come, so they rejected him. They expected someone who would use brute force to take off and take down their Roman oppressors. They wanted the dignity of their Davidic kingdom restored to Israel. They wanted someone who was strong, loud, bold, somebody who would conquer and destroy all the other nations that stood in opposition to them, not one who would come and save them. I think I remember somebody in the Old Testament who had that mentality, who got swallowed by a fish. They had the same mentality. They wanted someone who was strong, loud, and bold, not gentle. What did they get? Text tells us. A Messiah who would not quarrel. A Messiah who would not cry aloud in the streets. One who would not pronounce himself triumphantly. Instead, they got a Messiah who was humble and meek, who was patient and kind, who was not a conquering king, but a suffering savior. So when that is the Messiah that showed up, they said, I'm good on this invite. I'll give it to you. I don't want to go. I don't want it anymore. What they failed to realize was that the same meekness that would bring justice and hope to all the other Gentile nations was the same thing necessary for bringing them hope and justice as well. Why? Because the sins of man, both 
Jewish man and Gentile man needed atoning for. They needed payment. Sin made a debt, a debt none of us could ever pay, not in a billion lifetimes, and only Christ could pay it. And so Jesus had to come, not conquering and reigning, but suffering and serving. Because if he had come conquering and reigning, nobody would have survived that. Not a single soul would have survived that. You see how completely radical this is then. Jesus wasn't just a carpenter's son from Galilee. We're talking about the second member of the triune God. This is remarkable. The all-powerful God. Think of the attributes of God that we just went through recently. The all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the all-present eternal God who spoke into existence the blazing light of a billion trillion suns. That's the God we're talking about. The God who upholds the universe by the power of his might. And he did so even when he laid in the manger in Bethlehem. And that this God, he comes in calmness, in tranquility, not in contentious violence towards his oppressors, though he had every right to do so. With the disciples, we often see them as dim-witted as they come. How did he respond to them? He was patient. He was kind. And is it any different with the disciples who lived 2,000 years later? All of us. No. He's patient. He's kind. He's slow to anger. With the crowds, how did he respond? He loved them and cared for them, healing their sick and preaching the kingdom message. And we only get a small scratch on the surface of what those healings were. John says if he would have written down everything Christ did, the whole world wouldn't be able to fill all the books. With the religious leaders, he didn't shout them down in the streets. He didn't run into conflict after, you know, with his chest puffed up, calling them out, trying to argue and fight with them. No, he withdraws for a time trying not to stir the pot, which is actually pretty remarkable because that's an act of grace, not just towards them, but for us. Because one of the major reasons Christ did this was because he was making sure to get to the cross at the right time. That was a part of the plan of salvation. Not too soon, not too early. At his completely unjustified trial, which was totally unjust, Christ practiced what he preached back in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount by turning the other cheek in silence as they blinded him, as they slapped his face, demanding that he prophesy, saying, who hit you? Who did it? He didn't say a word. This is a radical, radical truth. God himself The all-powerful, infinite, eternal God of the universe subjugated himself to dying a horrifying death on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And he could have stopped it at any moment and could have prevented it entirely if he wanted to. He could have called down legions of angels at his aid. And yet on the cross, they mocked him. They ridiculed him, saying, come down. Come down and show us that you're truly the Son of God. Prove it. And yet, remarkably, in the most amazing example of love, Christ did the completely unexpected thing. He stayed. He stayed on the cross. He didn't have to. And why? He stayed there for you, for me. 
And he did so because he was compassionate, not callous, which leads us to our third point this morning. The Messiah's mission was calculated, it was calm, and third, it was compassionate, not callous. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. All right, what is this talking about? What is this whole thing about a bruised reed, a smoldering wick not being quenched? What is this? All right, here's what this is. Back then, reeds were used for a lot of different things. You would use them as a flute. You could use them as a measuring rod. You could use them as a, as a make them into something to write with. A whole bunch of other things like that. But reeds were cheap. There was tons of them. They grew in the millions by every marsh and riverside. And so if one was bruised, where it, wasn't, it lost its strength, its sturdiness, wasn't going to stand up straight anymore, uh, because they were so cheap, you just tossed them. You were like, oh man, my reed, it's, it's, not, it's not holding up like it was. We've got to fix this thing. No, you just like toss it aside. You go grab another one. They're so cheap. Reeds were cheap, fragile, and weak. All right, now before we unpack that, let's explain the second an illustration that Jesus gives here, the metaphor of the smoldering wick. For a wick, what you would usually do is you take like linen cloth or something like that, and you would put it in, an, in a lamp with oil there, and then you would light it. And it would burn slowly, and it would give you light to your house. All right, so that's how this worked. So what's the smoldering wick then? It's a, it's a smoking wick. Okay, so this wick that you would put in there to burn, to light, to give you light around your house, sometimes it, those things would begin smoking, right? smoldering, smoldering, smoking, same kind of a thing here. And it would, when it would do that, it would not only diminish its light, but it would kick out a lot of smoke that wasn't fun to breathe and wasn't fun to smell. All right? So you didn't want that kind of a wick. You didn't want a smoldering wick. And because like the reed, it was so cheap, you just pull it out and you would toss it and be done with it and put another one in. All right, so those are the two illustrations. Those make sense? Okay, now here's what they mean. Here's Jesus' point. The point is the servant that Isaiah is speaking of, that Matthew is quoting, saying, this is Jesus. That makes sense? Okay, he's saying the Messiah will not break off or throw out bruised reeds. He will not quench or put out or discard the flickering, smoldering, smoking wicks. He won't do that. The smoldering wick and the bruised reeds, then, are metaphors for us, for the helpless, for the oppressed, for the needy. That's the context here. That's what it's being talked about in, the, in Isaiah. The bruised reeds are those who have been abused. The smoldering wick are those who are weary and tired, whose flame is about to go out. And here, Matthew, by quoting Isaiah, shows how the Messiah is the servant of God who comes not with callous indifference towards the poor, the sick, the needy, and the helpless. How does he come? Compassionately. He comes as the friend of sinners. For he is the friend of sinners. He is the merciful one who cares deeply for the hurting which is why he is the great healer who heals them all, as verse 15 mentions. See, this context for this passage is all about the wonderful, merciful Savior, about the extent that he was willing to go to save those who needed saving. This is why Matthew mentioned back in chapter 9, he said when, the, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
you see the Gentile, the gentle and compassionate character then of God's servant. He doesn't come to destroy and condemn. He comes to heal and to save. Which is why he says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see now why the Lord was so tender and compassionate to John the Baptist back when he was doubting in Matthew chapter 11? It's because, as Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The bruised reeds. He is close to them. He is compassionate towards them. Jesus the Messiah, God's beloved and compassionate and gentle servant, is not quick to condemn. He is not quick to discard us. When we are hurting, but he will persevere in his divinely orchestrated mission to bring justice and peace to all the nations, not just the Israelites. And so he is bringing justice and peace to all the nations, but there's a criteria for that. Think back in Matthew chapter 5 when he began the Sermon on the Mount. What was that criteria? All those who are what? Poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness not of their own. And because this is the case, in Christ then, the outcasts, the needy, and the downtrodden find mercy and healing. However, for those who do not seek mercy and refuge under his wings, they will not find a gentle Savior, but a conquering King, which leads us to our fourth point this morning. The Messiah's mission was not calculated. It was calculated. It was calm. It was compassionate. And fourth, it was conquering, not collapsing. Look at verse 21. In his name, the Gentiles will put their hope. The plan of God is truly remarkable, isn't it? You know, this week when I was prepping this text, looking at it, I'm like, man, there's not a lot to this, is there? Just a pretty straightforward, you know, Jesus is the Savior coming, things we've heard a billion times. But by the time I was done studying this text, looking at this, I was just like, whoa. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. And that's the danger, is we can become so just calloused ourselves, so just used to hearing that, yeah, Jesus died for our sins. Yeah, Jesus, you know, there's sin debt to be paid. Jesus paid it. Yep, 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 trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. Got it. And it just goes right over our heads. And then when that happens, it skips penetrating our hearts and recharging our souls as it should. So we must remember the plan of God is remarkable. Well, God originally chose the Israelites as his special people to be a light unto the nations, they completely failed in that mission, didn't they? Big time. And not only did they fail, but at this time, they had extreme prejudice and hatred towards those outside of their nation, towards non-Jews. They thought they were superior to them all. After all, we were God's special chosen people. We're not like those sinful Gentile dogs. And yet, with that kind of thinking, ironically, they were actually further from the heart of God than they could have ever have imagined. This air of superiority over others is satanic to the core. You understand the mission of God's servant then. It wasn't to make good people better. It's not what it's about. It's not to clean us up a little bit, you know, we're doing all right, we just need a help. It's not to give us 
some spiritual crutches to help us get along a little bit further. No, it was to bring the dead to life. And so if you're here this morning with an attitude like that of the Jewish nation, realize what you're doing. Realize what you're doing is you are outright rejecting the invitation to the wedding feast that has been given to you. And if you reject that invitation, that means you're out. And eventually, as the illustration of Matthew 22 shows us, you're coming, the judgment is coming for you. And it's coming in a heavy way. Someday very soon, the messianic servant that Isaiah spoke of is coming back again to fulfill all the other messianic prophecies that he hasn't fulfilled yet that we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures, especially in Isaiah. And he is going to come as a conquering king to rule and reign over all the nations of the world. And so when he comes, he will break the stubborn reeds who refused his tender care. He will put out the smoking wicks who have foolishly rejected him. And he will, as verse 20 says, bring justice to victory. For those who have placed their hope and joy in his name, what is coming? Justice to victory in their great salvation as they rule and reign with him. But for those who have rejected his name, like the nation of Israel did, he will bring about their great eternal destruction. And so our response to all of this that we're looking at this morning, uh, it depends on which one we are, the kind of response that we should have to this. If you've rejected his name, then you need to see that your destruction lies at your doorstep. It's that far away. And so what you must do then is place your hope in him. And so if that's you this morning, do so. Nothing fancy about it. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn to the Savior. Stop trusting in your works righteousness. It's not going to get you anywhere. And if you do that today, tell someone about it. So we know. So we can rejoice with you. And we can come alongside you and help encourage you as you begin your new Christian life and your new walk with Christ. For those here who have already placed your hope in his name, you have some things you need to ask yourself in light of this text. Does that hope override life's difficult circumstances? Yeah, they're still going to be hard. Still going to hurt. It's going to be painful. But the pain and the challenges of this life will not diminish your hope, will they? If Christ is your hope, what they'll, what they'll actually do is they're going to increase your hope all this more. Why? Because it helps us realize this world is not my home. I'm just the passing through. It's just a vapor that quickly appears for a moment and poof, it's gone. Think of how many generations just like us have sat under the preaching of the word and then lived their lives and went on to eternity. We're just next in line for that great process. And it's going faster than we can think. So life's circumstances shouldn't diminish our hope. It should increase them all the more. Another thing for believers is we need to ask ourselves, are we being like our Savior? That's the goal of our salvation, to become Christ-like. Yeah, we're going to do it imperfectly, but we need to do it. We should do it. We must and we will. So are you being calm, not contentious with others as Christ was with you? 
He was calm towards you, not contentious. Are you being calm towards others and not contentious? Or are you going around trying to break all the bruised reeds you see out there because you see them as being valueless and you want to toss them out and replace them with non-bruised reeds? What if Christ had done that to you? Are you rough and calloused with people or compassionate and caring? Another thing to think about is Christ did all this as being the great light, which Matthew talked about earlier, and he did so to be the light of the world, a light to all of the nations. And so too, thinking back to Matthew chapter 5, are we to be? We're to be salt and light. We're to go into the world and point people to the Savior that we've encountered. So are you doing that? The answer is no. And the conviction I had personally when I went through this was, am I seeing everything we looked at in point one with the greatness and the supreme value and worth of God, of Christ? Am I valuing the gift, the beloved Son, whom the Father is completely well pleased in? What a marvelous gift. Am I valuing that? If I am, surely I will be a light to the nations. I will want to tell people about the one whom loved me so greatly and who gave up so much. Think about this. If the Father's soul is pleased in Christ, and that's what the text says in Isaiah, shouldn't our souls be pleased by him as well? Absolutely they should. Absolutely they should. Hope has come to all the nations of the world in Christ Jesus. That's what Matthew is telling us. And even when it doesn't look like that, even when things are dark, when it doesn't seem like it's going to God's plan, God is still on the throne and his plan is in the making. And even the darkness that we encounter is a part of that plan. And so the hope of all the world has come and he is coming. So I ask you this morning, is he your hope? Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I pray for the one here today who maybe Christ has, is their hope. Maybe they are your son or daughter, but they are struggling. They feel far from you. Their hearts feel indifferent. They feel cold. They feel alone in this world. They do not sense your greatness nor your great love for them. Father, I draw near to them as they draw near to you. And we thank you that you do not cast out bruised reeds, that you do not put out smoldering wicks, but you come and mend as the great healer who heals all that come to you, as Matthew points out to us. So Father, I just pray for us as Christians, Lord, that we would recognize that we are bruised reeds, that we are smoldering wicks on our own. But in Christ we are as brightly shining as the glorious sun itself. So, Father, help us to take hope in Christ, in his greatness, not in ourselves. Help us not to look inwardly, to try to find satisfaction with whatever piddly performance we can muster up, but to look to the one who lived the perfect life that we never could, who died the death that we deserved and could never survive, and victoriously rose again from the dead on the third day. Father, for the one here who Christ is not their hope, we pray that by your Spirit, you would convict them to the core of their heart. That you would 
point them to Christ, that they would see the beauty of Christ, and that they would stop living for the things of this world, the foolish lesser gods, the idols of this world, and that they would see your great glory and be forever changed by it. We praise you for your grace and for your mercy and for your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.